thanks, Joe. Uh, my name is Scott. I'm on the worship team here, and I'll be reading the scriptures this morning. It's from 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And now we'll jump down to verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Thank you. Thank you, Scott, for sharing the word of the Lord with us this morning. Well, good morning. My name is Steve Atkins. I'm the lead pastor here at Hillcrest, and um, I'm excited to be sharing with you this morning. Just a couple weeks ago, I walked into the living room and sat down with my wife on the couch, and she was watching TV, and she said, you're just in time for the reveal. Can anyone guess which channel we were watching? <laughs> yeah, HGTV. And um, so I sat down for the reveal, and uh, the camera panned across this kitchen. And I was like, yeah, that's a pretty nice kitchen. Yeah, actually, that's a very nice kitchen. I really like it. And then a second later, it changed and showed the sa same kitchen again. I was impressed with the before, and I didn't realize. I thought I was looking at the after. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I was watching HGTV, and I was enjoying that with my wife. But it's, it got me thinking about the reveal. The reveal in HGTV world is part of the show where we get to see the outcome of people's house hunting journey or their renovating journey. And the reveal is where you find out, after looking at and comparing three different places to live, which one they bought and how it looks now that they've moved in. Or the reveal is where you find out, after comparing the house searching efforts of a realtor with the renovation efforts of a designer, whether they're going to love their renovation and stay in their house or decide to list their house and buy another one that the realtor showed them. Are you going to love it, or are you going to? Right. And almost every reveal involves some moment comparing what it looked like before compared to what it looks like after. Because comparison is key to the reveal. I found myself, when I watch HDTV, I sometimes make comparisons that aren't even part of the program. I look at a house and say, wow, that house is completely redone or it's completely new. And our house, in comparison, is completely vintage. Does anyone have a character house? 
We live in Moose Jaw. There's lots of character houses. Anyone have a character house that's a bit of a character? <laughs> We've been there. Sometimes I look at things, I say, wow, the pool in their yard looks so inviting and wonderful and refreshing. In comparison, the water we have in our basement is more discouraging. Or I see them walking in the sun on the beach in that sunny location, and I compare that to shoveling snow and scraping windshields and waiting for the power to come on for two days in Cairnport and Mortlach. Comparison in my head sounds like this. Imagine having that kind of money. Imagine having that kind of life. How can I get what they have? And in order to do that, how can I get more money? Now, if comparing houses isn't bad enough, I also find myself comparing lifestyles too. Have you ever thought this? I mean, it's one thing to say, man, that house is nicer than our house. It's another thing to say, their lifestyle or their life is better than our life. And probably my wife's favorite reno show is Fixer Upper. Fixer Upper, uh, the, the main, uh, the wife in the show, her name is Joanna Gaines, and she's sharp and she's sophisticated in charge and she's got an eye for decor and she just does everything right. And then she's married to Chip, and Chip is her doting, lovable, goofball husband who gladly does all the grunt work for her. I think I discovered what w- women really want. A doting, lovable, goofball husband who gladly does the grunt work. I mean, my wife seems happy and she only has the first half of that. Can you imagine if she had the whole package? <laughs> nah, I know. I'm not worried. I'm pretty sure she's not comparing me with Chip Gaines. I'm pretty sure. So I'm not making a case today that watching HGTV or renovating your house or having subway tile backsplash means you've lost your way. And that's, that's not what I want to talk about. But I do want to make the case for the fact that we're immersed in a materialistic culture and we may be unaware of how it's affecting us. What does it mean to be materialistic? Materialism is defined as a preoccupation or an emphasis on material objects, comforts, and considerations with a disinterest in or rejection of spiritual values. So a preoccupation with or emphasis on material objects, comforts, and considerations with a disinterest in or rejection of spiritual values. Now, the Bible doesn't have the word materialism in it, but it does use another term, the love of money. And its symptoms sound very similar. Let me read to you, Ecclesiastes 5.10. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. And this, too, is meaningless. Or it's a a fruitless or a meaningless way to live your life. Materialism is second-rate living. And the love of money creates a dissatisfaction in us. It steals our contentment. Have you ever heard of the term lifestyle creep? Lifestyle creep. It's so, it occurs when your standard of living goes up 
And the things that before were like wants, you now have them, but you sort of settled at a new level, and so now they become needs. One, uh, I'll just read this to you. A hallmark of lifestyle creep is a change in thinking and behavior that sees spending on non-essential items as a right rather than a choice. This can be seen in the spending decision or the spending decision attitude of you deserve it rather than thinking of the opportunities that saving money would provide. And a way to fight lifestyle creep is budgeting and discerning wants from needs when making purchases. So this is what Ecclesiastes 5.10 is talking about. You love money and you never have enough. And if you love wealth, you're never satisfied with your income. There's always something more. You look at your Latham plaster and you say, paneling would be fantastic. If only I could have paneling to cover it up. And you do. And a number of years later, you look at your paneling and you say, I really want drywall. Let's just take it all out. And then a few years later, you say, thanks to watching HGTV, I need shiplap. I just got to have shiplap. And a few years later, you're replacing it with subway tile. And coming next week will be the next product you're going to rip out your subway tile for. More, more, more. How much money would make you happy? And the answer is more. Always more. Never enough, never satisfied. First Timothy 6, this is our main passage with Scott Red. It's really powerful how it just talks about this dynamic of losing contentment. First Timothy 6, 6 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Being content in a godly way is incredible gain in your life. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be, we will be content with that. This line, food and clothing, this is, again, Paul referring back to the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, which we'll read later. If we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, there it is again, is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So the love of money will, will steal your contentment. And in this passage it says it's like a, a temptation that leads to harmful desires, that leads to ruin and destruction. And that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Jesus said it a little bit differently in Luke chapter 16, 13 to 5. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he gets at what he's talking about. You cannot serve both God and money. So the love of money is not just some minor affection, just some, something you also love. It's, the love of money is describing 
when money becomes a substitute in your heart for God, a rival for your trust and worship. And, and what Jesus is saying in here is that these can't coexist. This is another love it or list it moment. You're either going to love money and list God, or you're going to love God and list money. One is going to be what you depend on, what you look to, what you trust in. Now it says right after that, you cannot serve both God and money. It says, then the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. And what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So the love of money values detestable things. It values the wrong things. I remember a story I heard years ago about um, a war in Russia, and there was a very rich, aristocratic family, and they, along with the whole population of their, um, their city, were fleeing the city from an advancing army. And so they had gathered their horse and their cart, and they'd taken all the uh, you know, items from their house which were worth money, a lot of money, and they'd filled the cart with all of their riches. And then they went down the, the same road. Every, all the other war, uh, refugees from the war were coming down. People walking and stumbling through the mud, and they, they came along in their cart. And, it, and the, the rich man's daughter is in the back of the cart, and she's seeing people who... Uh, can't walk, they're on crutches, or they're just barely hobbling along, and she realizes that they won't escape the advancing army. They won't make it. And then she just shouts out to her father at the front of the car, and she says, Father, Father, put the people in the cart. Put the people in the cart. The love of money sometimes just blinds us to an obvious decision. An obvious valuing. We end up valuing the wrong things in crucial moments. So Jesus and his followers, they warn about the love of money like crazy. It's just like an amber alert in the scripture. Listen to this. Luke 12, 15 says, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then Hebrews 13.5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. So what is the love of money? Let me give you 1 Timothy 6.17, which we read already. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So, the love of money is putting your hope in wealth as opposed to putting your hope where it should be, your hope in God. So we are in a series that we're called Launching the Next Legacy. In about, uh, what, five, six weeks, December 18th, uh, we are going to come together as a church and we're going um, to give together. Here's the key verse that I, I think I'm going to keep coming back to throughout this series. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. It says, each of you should give. This is sort of what the picture of what I think I'm hoping for on that Sunday. Each of you should give. 
Some will give a little, some will give a lot, some will, but each of you should give. Give towards the Hillcrest of the future of our church. So that's the first thing. What you've decided in your heart to give is the second part of the verse. So again, what you decide in your heart, right? Pray about it. We have a prayer guide. You can get it today. Take it home with you. It'll help you to walk through a decision like this. So you can pray and, uh, and carefully make a decision. And it's what you decide in your heart to give. That's what it is. And then it goes on to say, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Not reluctantly under compulsion. There's not going to be a big arm twisting or a, you know, some manipulation in, involved in this. It, and and I, I, we don't really, we want people to be able to give and not be under their, some sort of their own, I don't know what it is, guilt or some sort of um, their own compulsion or the compulsion of another person. We really want people to make this decision in their own heart. And then it says, for God loves a cheerful giver. I, you know, we often just, often when people quote that verse, they just talk about God loving a cheerful giver. But I like all the steps involved in it. But what is it God wants for us when it comes to money? When I think about a God who wants his followers to be cheerful givers, that somehow we're released from some of those other things that stop us from becoming uh, excited about giving or to really enjoy giving or especially giving to the kingdom, what God wants to do in this world. There's a lot of anxiety that surrounds money. There's a lot of ways, even for Christians, that we find ourselves um, sort of torn between these two masters, between these two values, between these, these two treasures. We're torn between um, very materialistic thoughts that we, 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 we struggle with and wanting to live 100% for God in the other direction. And I think the reason we're torn is because we're being bombarded again and again and again in our culture with materialistic um, messaging. Now, I read this. This is an old stat now, so it's probably much more. They said that by the time you hit age 20, you've seen one million commercials. One million messages that say you don't have the thing that will make you happy. Or you don't have the thing that will keep you safe. Or you don't have the thing that you really need. And so it's normal in our culture to feel this drawn to more and more and more and not have contentment. And it drives us to become anxious people. Jesus wrote some words, or he spoke some words for anxious people, and I'm going to read them to you, and then we're going to watch a short video. Matthew 6, 25 to 34. It says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble 
of its own. And now for some commentary on this scripture, we're just going to invite uh, Willard's video. Good morning. My name is Willard Mitchell. We moved to Moose Jaw three years ago. We've been very happy with our time here. I'm going to tell you a little story this morning about when this scripture that we're going to hear more about this morning, when this became real to me. It was a time coming up to retirement and, you know, salary isn't going to go on forever. And I had no debts and limited savings. But when I was reading this portion of scripture in Matthew 6, Jesus said, don't worry. And he said, said it three times, don't worry about material things, don't worry about your money. And then he said, don't worry about your image, how you present yourself. And don't worry about your future. Now it's interesting that he didn't say, don't think about these things or don't plan for them or don't do anything about it. He said, don't worry. He also said, your heavenly father knows that you have need of these things. I kind of got hold of that and felt I could understand it. But it was the next portion that was a challenge. He said, don't worry, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. How can I do that? There are too many things, too many parts of my life. I mean, how do I tr think to make God first in my life, in my, my home and in my work and, and in my relationships and money and time and my thought processes? I needed to establish priorities, uh, like a priority grid that everything could go through that. It was a question of really what is most important to me. I found that I needed to spend more time in the scriptures and letting that get into my heart. And then I found that out of that uh, prayer naturally flowed from that and the prayer could be uh, praise and thanksgiving or it could be confession and just plain help. But the other thing that I found is that priorities became much more obvious during this process. I wrote a little prayer and it's in the back of my my Bible here and it I wrote, Oh God, would you let the truth of your word inform and shape my life and my priorities. The truth of your word to inform and shape my priorities in life. And I found that that was a lifetime pursuit. That's a little bit of my journey. Uh, 
I love how Willard says it's a lifetime pursuit. It's not just an on and off switch. We're, on, we're in a constant, uh, we're even either moving more towards living for God's kingdom first, or we're moving uh, the other way. We're always sort of in flux. And uh, we're just really praying that these weeks that we're going through this series, that this will be a time where we're gathered around the word, like Willard has said, and in doing that, we, shift, we sense a shift in ourselves, of our own priorities, of our own, maybe some of our anxiety or discontent around money and things drops away. And instead, we experience the freedom of living in the kingdom and, and, and prioritizing Christ's kingdom in our lives. So, Jesus had said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And there's a contrast here in this scripture that we just looked at. A life without God, he said, this is what the pagans run after. A pagan, not the best word, maybe the, nowadays sounds very derogatory, but it's really people without God. Or living your life like God isn't a part in it. Even if you confess that he is your Lord, but you're not seeing that really working out. Because the kingdom is really all about wherever Christ is king. If he's king of your life, that's where the kingdom is, is being established. And uh, embracing his, his kingship in, in more and more, in greater and greater ways. So we have a contrast between life without God and life with God. And it's almost like at the beginning of an HGTV show where the contractor or the designer comes to the people who want this, the work done and they say, well, we're going to do a little computer mock-up of what's going to happen. And they show it and they're like, oh, yeah, that's great. Oh, yeah. It's not the full outworking of what's going to happen, but they get an idea. And today... I'm really just wanting to present to you some of the ideas that are in the renovation project that Jesus has designed for your heart and mine. So Jesus does a bit of a before and after in this passage and in the passages we've already looked at in different scriptures, comparing the two masters, God or money, comparing the two pursuits, run after all these things or seek the kingdom, and comparing the two treasures, treasure on this earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, or treasure in heaven that is eternal and cannot be uh, stolen or destroyed. So Jesus is like a good, a good designer. He's trying to help people see. He's trying to help people see in advance that their before should have a great kingdom after and that he wants to do a work in our lives. So he says... Instead of serving money, serve God. Instead of hoping in wealth, hope in God. Instead of storing up things for yourself, be rich toward God. Instead of running after all these things, seek the kingdom. Instead of life consisting of the abundance of your possessions, take hold of the life that's truly life. In the before, you never have enough. You're never satisfied. Discontent, worry, anxiety. You're trusting in wealth that is so uncertain. And after, food and clothing is enough. Content with what you have. Trust in God, who is a firm foundation for this life and for the one to come. You're taking hold of eternal life now. You're walking in it. So I'm not up here to say wealth is the problem. It's okay to have money. You might be wealthy. That's okay. But it's what happens with the wealth, because you, you can worship God with your wealth. But the culture around you will try to turn you 
to just worshiping wealth instead of worshiping God. And so we have this struggle going on, and I think there's, I just want to offer three things to help you in your struggle and my struggle as well. And they're just kingdom reveal one, two, and three. Three things that'll, that I think if, if we embrace these things, if we embrace Jesus' renovation plan for our hearts, we'll see some really great things happen in our lives, shifting away from running after all these things to seeking the kingdom first. Here's kingdom reveal number one. As king, Jesus is the owner, and I am the manager. You say, well, pastor, you're talking a lot about my money today. Actually, I'm not talking about your money. I'm not talking about my money. I'm talking about God's money. This is in the scripture again and again. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And that is everything. God owns everything. The earth and us belong to us, belong to God. Get mixed up. See, that's the materialism coming through me. God has a first and foremost claim on our lives and also on our possessions. Here's 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So he's got a second claim on us. Not just that he created us and it all belongs to him in the first place, but he bought us back through Jesus' blood. He paid for our sin on the cross, buying us freedom with his sacrificial death. And then Deuteronomy 8, 18. Remember the Lord your God, for, he, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. So there's another second claim on whose money is it? It's his money. There's a, there's a, Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 25, and he's doing a series of parables on what the kingdom of God is like. And so he says this again, it would be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. He's trying for his disciples to understand this. I'm entrusting you with responsibilities. I'm entrusting you with your life. I'm entrusting you with um, uh, your opportunities. I'm entrusting you with your family, with your kids. They're, in a, they're something I'm entrusting you with. And with money. And later on in this same verse, the two, two of these guys get bags of gold. They go and they invest them. And they come back and they've doubled the investment. And the, the master says, well, good, done, well, done. Good and faithful servant, you have been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. You know, I watched recently a, a video, just the life of Billy Graham, and they just asked him, like, what are you hoping for in heaven? He says, I just want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I thought, that's it. Good and faithful servant. You were a steward. You were a manager of what God gave you. And you didn't waste it. You didn't bury it. You didn't in fear do nothing with it. You invested it in the kingdom. So there's one lazy, wicked and lazy servant of the three servants, and, and this is the response he gets. It's, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers. Again, whose money it is, is it? It's the master's. And so we are stewards or managers, and we're not owners of our life, our body, our finances, and our family. That's the first big reveal. And my hope is for each of these reveals to sink into our hearts and become more powerful and potent. But king, as king, Jesus is the owner, and we are the managers. Here's kingdom reveal number two. 
Seeking the kingdom isn't about having no treasure. It's about having the greatest treasure. You know, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And you know why? Well, one, it brings God glory. When we love God, it brings him glory. It shows When we uh, appreciate and, and admire and adore all that God is, when we discover all the facets of his beauty and his character and his greatness and his majesty and his power and justice and mercy and all those things, it gives him glory when we love that, when we see that, and we, it's revealed to us who he is. But it's also for our satisfaction. It's also for our satisfaction. It brings him great glory for him to be seen for who he is, but also brings us great satisfaction. So Jesus' kingdom is the greater treasure. Matthew 13, 44, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then, in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought the field. So this isn't a story about someone who gave up everything for nothing. This is a story about someone who gave up everything to get so much more than he had before. And that's the story of the kingdom. It's not like, oh, be a dutiful servant of the Lord, and you'll end up with nothing, but you'll have done the right thing. No, Jesus, he, he, he I don't even know what the right word is, but it's like he entices us with reward. He entices us with greater treasure. Not falsely offered, it's true, it's real. But in this, he finds a treasure in the field, and in his joy, he sells everything. In his joy, he liquidates, gets rid of every possession, so he can have this treasure. The kingdom of heaven brings joy into your life. When you begin to exchange running after all these things for seeking the kingdom first. Matthew 6, 19 to 21, Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Greater treasure, the kingdom is greater treasure because it cannot be lost. Imagine if you were living at the end of the Civil War in the United States and you were from the north but you'd been in the South for a while and you had all this Confederate money, but you heard from your relatives back home that they're just about to announce the end of the war. And your pockets are full of Confederate money and you know it's going to be worthless in a day. What would you do? Tell you what I'd do. I'd run across the line and I'd go to a bank and I'd exchange my money. That would be the smart thing to do. The smart thing to do in our lives is to not store up treasure here, but trade in that treasure for treasure in heaven. Because this is going to lose its value. Go to, a, you know, go to the junkyard somewhere. Go to the landfill. Just stand there and look at all the treasures that people paid good money for. That's where it's all going. But the treasure in heaven can never, it will never end in a landfill. So Matthew 6, 33, Jesus said, Seek first his, his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And it's not just greater treasure, but it's a greater life. Remember this warning? 
Watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Okay, that's what life is. You know, the guy who dies with the most toys still dies and leaves his treasure behind. So that doesn't work. 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19 gives us a different look of what life is about. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, which in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich. You know, it's possible that you, you may, uh, there are people who are rich in this world, but they haven't become rich. Where riches really lie. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Do you want to live the life that's truly life? Good, one of you, okay? Yeah. Yeah. God's got a life for us that's really life. And it involves generosity and being willing to share, doing good. Here's kingdom reveal number three. The way to break the chains of materialism is through giving. Giving is the way to break the chains of materialism and expand Jesus' kingdom. Remember what Jesus said? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So here's a really neat idea. If you want your heart to grow an affection for the kingdom or for the king or for the people of God or for others, send some of your treasure that direction. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You ever notice that you've you ever donated to something and then suddenly you just very interested in what's going on there, where you weren't before. Or something you've, you support financially. You just feel like, I, I'm in this. I, I, I'm part of this. I'm, I'm invested here. That's what happens when we give our money towards things. We give it and our heart follows. You know, a number of years ago, 1994 to be precise, so quite a number of years ago, I was traveling with a, uh, yeah, a lot of years. I was traveling with... Um, an evangelism team called Life Force. They were going all over Western Canada in high schools, and we basically go in, we all would we'd do all these dramas, and then we'd talk about positive lifestyle choices and talk with kids. And then if we had opportunities to talk about Jesus, we, we took those when we had them. And uh, we were in Hinton, Alberta, and um, it was in the school, on the high school at Hinton, Alberta, that I met Tony Raymore for the first time while doing a drama production. And I had no idea that later on that night that he and I would be alone in the tiny office at the local church where he would make the most important decision of his life. I met Tony, something about, I was drawn to him in some way, I just sort of thought it was interesting, he was helping out, he was, he was a drama student who'd gone away to university, but he'd come back and help his drama teacher every now and again with stuff. And so he was there, and he was watching our performances, and he was interacting with us, and God just put him on my heart, and I just started praying for him, and praying for him, and praying for him all through the school day. And then I thought, well, what, what do I do with, I'm praying that God would impact him, what do I do? And I, there was a Bible study at the local church that night, so I, I invited him to come. 
And I thought, he, I don't know, if, you know, from this great drama presentation, or what I thought was great, to a Bible study, maybe he wouldn't go for it. But I prayed then, through the supper hours, that he would come, and he showed up. And then he sat in a, in a bench in this church, and I sat a couple of pews behind him, so I could pray for him all the way through the service. And I prayed for him all the way through the service, and I started praying, God, help the pastor to see this opportunity to invite someone to come to Jesus. And the pastor did. And then I was praying, God, help Tony to see he needs Jesus. And he went up to the front. And I was like, God, send somebody who would care for Tony to go talk to him. And nobody moved. And then one of the leaders on my team, Sherry, came over and she said, you see that guy up there? I said, yeah. Because he you probably needs someone to pray with him. I said, I agree 100%. And nobody moved. And then my friend Jason, he, got, he, he moved, and he was really good with sharing his faith. So I was just really excited he was going to. So he started walking up, and then he veered into my bench, and he said, get up there. <laughs> and so I went up there and had the most amazing, incredible experience. We went off to this little side office, and I was nervous because I didn't know if I knew how to explain everything that he might need to know about following Jesus. But the Holy Spirit had already done all the work. He told me about how he... Um, he had a life, uh, he was leaving sin and embracing Jesus. He wanted, and then he was starting a brand new life that night. And he really did. He started a brand new life on January 19th, 1994. That fall, he, sh- he joined a short-term missions program at a Bible college in Edmonton. And over the next three years, he traveled to places like Israel and Malawi and Cuba, taking the message of the gospel through drama and preaching. He presented the gospel to tens of thousands of people. He was instrumental in seeing many, many people come to Christ. And four years after that, I was writing him letters back and forth uh, for the next couple years, just just amazed at the transformation that happened in Tony's life. But four years later, he wrote a letter to Life Force, the organization, and this is what he wrote. He said, since my rebirth on that wonderful day, I have had opportunities that I could have never imagined. As you will understand, the change God works in your life is intense, often overwhelming in retrospect. Everybody knew, everybody who knew Tony knew he was radically changed. He said, at the end of my last trip overseas, my life changed dramatically again. It first began as a weakness in my hands. And since it spread to other areas, we discovered after a barrage of tests that I have ALS. It has brought with it new challenges, but it has also been a glorious testing of my faith. I am delighted to report that God has made moments during this struggle both glorious and rewarding. Tony had discovered what Peter wrote in the Bible in 1 Peter, that that our faith is of greater worth than gold, because it could never be taken from him. He said, I share all this to say that I'm amazed at God's perfect timing. Without life force, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to travel, to share the gospel with people all over the world. More importantly, I wouldn't have had time for my faith to develop into the rock which has consistently helped me and, and 
the rock it has become, which has consistently helped me through this time. So Jesus had become his rock in the storm of ALS. I wanted to encourage you that God's timing is perfect, whether salvation comes to people while you're present or your efforts bear fruit at a later date, you can be assured that what you do counts. And one year later, Tony passed into glory. One of the last things he did was he was, he was able to direct a play of his own. It was one of his life's desires. And he, and he performed it in his hometown of Hinton. And everybody came out because they knew Tony wasn't going to be around very long. And it had a significant impact on many people's lives in this hometown of Hinton. See, Tony found the treasure that was hidden in the field. He discovered the kingdom. Somehow, through our interaction with us and sharing what we knew about Jesus, he realized that we had something he didn't have, and he traded in his old life for it. And then it just grew and grew and grew in value in his life. And his short life with Christ, those five years, they reveal what our longer maybe life with Christ sometimes conceals. The value of the kingdom of God. The way Tony treasured the kingdom was a great reveal to me. I grew up surrounded by the goodness of the kingdom of God. I grew up growing a church. My parents were Christians. I didn't realize how much of a treasure it really was. I will say confidently, I still don't realize all of the treasure that it is. I keep discovering more and more facets of this treasure. It's like a diamond that's cut in so many different ways, and, and it shines, and I keep finding different ways that it shines. So Tony saw that it was worth leaving all to get this treasure. And he sought out people he could partner with in reaching others with the message of God's kingdom. And he found strength in meeting in his struggle with ALS because of the treasure that knowing Christ as king really is. And so we have a struggle. We have a struggle. We can be lulled by the siren song materialism in our culture into a sleepiness in which we, even as Christians, don't really treasure the kingdom as the greater treasure. And so there's a real challenge for us. But God wants to reveal all that we have in who he is. John Wesley, I'm going to close with this. Worship team, you can come back. John Wesley was per perhaps the most influential British pastor in the 1700s. He was invited to tour a vast estate with a proud plantation owner. And they rode horses for hours and only saw a fraction of the man's property. At the end of the day, they sat down to dinner. And the plantation owner eagerly asked, Well, Mr. Wesley, what do you think? And Wesley replied, I think that you are going to have a hard time leaving all this. Some people have built a temporary kingdom for themselves here that we, they will have a hard time leaving. And every day that they live, they are coming one day closer to losing 
their treasure. But others, through the grace of God, have seen the kingdom as the greatest treasure. And they are investing their lives into the kingdom of Jesus that will endure forever. And every day they live, they are getting one day closer to their treasure. Because they sent it on ahead. Would you stand with me? Lord, we, we do not want to be unalert. We don't want to be, we don't want the, a creeping enslavement of materialism to rob us of all that we have in you. And Lord, I just, I believe it's, it's, it's your revelation. We find it in your word. Your Holy Spirit brings it alive to us. But we need what Willard was talking about before. We need to sit down with your word and see who you are to us. How valuable it is to have you, to put our trust in you. Not to live that anxious running after all things, but to seek first the kingdom and find that we're already partaking of the eternal life that you've won for us. We're already stepping in to the the glory of the future that you have for each of us. So Lord, our, our prayer is this. Would you make your words in Scripture come alive in our hearts? Would you do the renovation there? Would you show us where um, materialism has crept in? And would you set us free? Would you set us free to seek you, to seek your kingdom first and with all our hearts? In the name of Jesus.